Matthew chapter 2 is where we land on our thoughts for the next few weeks. Matthew chapter 2 is really a microcosm of the present age. Within chapter 2 of the book of Matthew, there are four prophecies that are going to be fulfilled by four different prophets. We are going to take our time, we'll just deal with the first prophet this morning and the first prophecy. But right out of the gate, Matthew being a Jewish gospel and concerned greatly that he communicates that the king of the Jews fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament and to convince a Jew of that, he lands on four prophets. The first is Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. We'll turn there in a moment. The second is, in Micah's prophecy, was that he would be born in Bethlehem. Hosea's prophecy is that he would go to Egypt and be called out of Egypt. Uh, Jeremiah's prophecy would be that the mothers in Bethlehem would cry out because of the murder of their child, of their children, their babies. And then fourthly, that he would be end up after Egypt in Nazareth. He would be called a Nazarene. That was foretold by a number of prophets. You can take your pick there. So we have Micah, we have Hosea, we have Jeremiah, and then we have several prophets saying the same thing about Jesus Christ. All of them, like stepping stairs and steps, will build a picture and help us understand step by step what this gospel is all about throughout the ages throughout our times. First of all, he lands on Micah's prophet, prophecy, chapter 2, verse 1. Look at it with me. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, ESV uses the word after. I know the King James uses the word when. Actually, there's no word there that's able to translate into any English word. It's literally now Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But I think the ESV translators did well by using the word after to try to translate it. Because what we have here is not a description of Jesus in the manger as a baby. Now I share this mainly for the young people who will come upon critics in their college classes and such that try to ridicule the Bible, and they'll use this particular passage in Luke's account of the birth as contradictory to one another. They're not. Uh, in Luke's account, he was a baby. Matthew's account, he was a child. Luke's account, he was in a manger. In a few minutes, you'll read that he was in a house. Well, which, which one was it? They're two different accounts. If we've got to have... The, the three kings or magi at the manger, we have a problem. But we don't have them in a manger. Because the accounts of Matthew took place when Jesus was two years old or younger. Well, how do we know that? Well, if you look at chapter 2, and you'll look at verse 16, and we're skipping ahead, but I just want to help you get a context of of. of how this story plays out. 
He says, when Herod, when he saw that he was tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region that were two years and younger. He got this time frame from the Magi who came through and told him, we saw the star. And we saw it 18 months ago, 12 months ago. Herod was probably getting over the amount just to make sure he got the Christ child. So the star appeared 18 months, whatever the, the wise men told Herod. And they traveled for that long looking for him. This child, Jesus, was two years or younger. In fact, no longer, look at verse 11. It says, and going into the house. Now they've moved into the house. So after the birth, Mary and Joseph stayed there. They had family. Joseph had a, had a trade. He could build tables and chairs and such. And so he had a business going on in Bethlehem for two years or less when this took place. So now you have justifiable reason for taking the three kings out of your major scene. They weren't there, okay? Look at chapter 2, verse 1 again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Well, what were the days? And who was this Herod? Herod the king took over as a young man in 47 B.C. This was about 6 to 7 to 8 B.C. at this time. So he had been ruling for about 40 years. And he was called Herod the Great for good reason. He was successful at creating peacefulness in Palestine, which was quite a feat for any ruler. He was given the title of king by the Romans, just a few years into his reign, if you will. And he was great in a lot of different aspects. He was a builder. He built the temple. In fact, when Jesus' ministry went on, the temple was still being processed and built, but Herod's, it was known as Herod's Temple. There was a time before Jesus was born that the people of Jerusalem were starving from a famine. Herod actually took gold out of his own house, melted it down, sold it, and bought food for the people. But there was a couple problems with Herod, and he knew them. He knew what those problems were. He wasn't a full Jew. He was a half-Jew. He was an Edomite. And the Jews never bought in to him being their king. He was, he was a mix, if you will. And Jews cared about it being pure. That's why Herod went overboard in trying to please the Jews to win an alliance. He never could because he was Edomite half-gone. His second problem is he was a terrible father and husband. How bad of a husband? Well, he killed most of his wives. He killed his eldest and the next son down because he felt they were a threat to his throne. Any threat at all to his throne, they were executed. Now, because he wanted to please the Jews, he never ate pork. He never ate pork. Of the day Caesar had a a fun saying, he said it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. The common saying of the day. At the time Jesus was born in these magi, that's Greek for 
the wise men came through. Herod was 67, 68 years old. He would die two years later. The madness in his mind was so wicked that a, that a babe, a child of two years younger, threatened a man when he was 68 years old. Now you could look in the, well, I don't know if he looked in the mirror, but you could tell he's, he hasn't got much time to go. How could a two-year-old be a threat to him? He was crazy. He was mad. One more thing about Herod, and then we'll, we'll look back into the scripture. He knew his time was short when he knew that, within weeks and months. He gave out the order that the day he died, he gave the authorities a list of popular people of the day and leaders and rulers that people loved. And he said, the day I die, put them to death. Execute all of them. Because he knew that no one would cry at his funeral, and he wanted people to cry in Israel when he died. This is Herod. He was a madman. Let me introduce to you Micah. We're, not, we're going to turn back there. I'm not going to read the whole book of Micah. But Micah's burden, because the richness of Matthew is looking back into the Old Testament to understand why these men quoted like they did from these men. Micah's burden was authority and kingship and a righteous reign. Micah ministered to Judea in the south. He was a contemporary of Isaiah in the north. And he ministered right before Babylon came down and took them out of the land. So Micah was the preacher of the land. And the kings that he ministered unto were evil and wicked. And he had, he had the burden of facing these men and preaching a wicked authority and kingship. One of the wickedness of the kings under Micah was this. Follow this. They had aligned themselves with foreign governments and kings. Something Israel was never to do. Israel was to trust in Jehovah for their protection. But here is little Israel surrounded by threatening Babylon... And so what do they do, the kings down there? They called Egypt, and they called this country, and they began to form alliances to protect them against Babylon. This was wickedness in the eyes of God, and Micah preached against it. Well, what do you have ruling over the Jews when Jesus was born? An Edomite, a half-Jew, one that isn't purely the king because he has foreign blood rushing through his veins. Do you see the alliance and, and the connection between all of this? Micah preaches to a, a land that this is not right. Our kings are connecting with foreign governments and gods. And as we look at Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, there was a man on the throne, howbeit from Rome, that was a foreigner. Okay? So look back at chapter 2. 
verse 1. So Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Now I've got to ask the question, and you should too, where do these wise men come from? They were magi. We get the word magician or sorcerer. Now, the occupation went downhill over the years, and in, in the New Testament times, it had turned wicked and evil. But these men were from the east. Notice it says, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The construction of the sentence is not that they came to Jerusalem from the east. That, meant, that would have meant anywhere. But the construction said they were from a particular area that they were known to label the east. Well, this was the Orient, not as we know it, but Babylon. These countries closer. Well, where do you get wise men? Where do you get this this this? By the way, all three of the were there three of them. That's another misnomer. There were three gifts. There were, it never says they were three magi. Forget that. Might have been ten. Might have been twenty. Might have been a hundred of these men. They gave three gifts. Well, where do you get all these magi? Where do you get all these wise men from the Babylon area? Well, if you remember, several hundred years before, there was a young man who was taken out of Israel during Micah's time and sent up into Babylon, into captivity, his name was Daniel. Daniel had a 70-year ministry. You don't think that had impact in the philosophical schools of thought, in the Babylonian culture? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they had watched Jehovah God rescue and deliver them, and they had incredible teaching for 70 years up in this area i got to believe somewhere along the path, Daniel told them, when the Messiah comes, you will see a star. And they were waiting for that star. They weren't waiting for a star for any kind of king. They were waiting for the king of the Jews, his specific star. So here they launch off. It took them 18 months. There was one point where they lost the star and they kept wandering to find it. Notice what they say. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Notice, they'd wandered a while without seeing it, but they knew the direction. And have come to worship him. Now, side by side, I want you to see something. Side by side, I want you to see something, and I want you to understand the first part of the microcosm of this passage. You have Herod the Edomite. When he hears of the birth of Jesus, you'll see his reaction, but you know what it is. It's furious. It's anger. It's insanity bent to the part where he kills all the boys, the children down there. And in contrast to Herod, ah, you got a bunch of wise men who worship him as kings, the king of glory. You have hatred, next to homage, side by side. Now, what's the big deal? What's the big deal with the whole thing? What, what's, what's the rub? Why is Herod furious 
and yet these wise men worship. You could ask the question, why do some people get saved and some people refuse salvation? This, this barks at the very core of the rejection or reception of the gospel. Are you ready? In order for one king to take a throne, the previous king must die. You cannot sit two people on one throne. I was out riding my bike in Callahan. Uh, I've adopted bike riding as a form of exercise. I'm Anyway, just to, to get back in shape. So I, my second ride down Stratton Road, and as I rode by in that country setting, I looked over and saw a flock of wild turkey. I've seen them there lots of times. They kind of wander through the area. All of a sudden behind me, I heard click, 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 click. I turned around, and there was a big tom turkey chasing me. And so I, you know, I, I, I started pedaling a little faster, and I look back, and he's gaining on me. Those things are huge. I thought, look like, look like Deion Sanders chasing down a receiver, man. He's just, that thing had wheels. I mean, it was going. So I pedaled faster and got away. You know what that turkey's problem was? I got too close to his women. He had a harem out there, and he saw me, and he said, that's a good-looking turkey. I don't want my women to go after him. I'm going to chase him out of the area. Because you can only have one Tom in a harem. You see? He wasn't ready to lay down his drumsticks for me. <laughs> Authority. We're born with it. We're born with the idea that we are the center spoke of the wheel. Okay? We're boxed in north, south, east, and west with us. The only purpose of all of your existence is to please me. The only reason you're alive is to make my life happier. We come into life with that mentality. And then we're presented with the gospel. And the very first thing that's said in the rejection is Christ as Lord of our lives. The gospel is the gospel of love. Yes, it is. But it's much more than a rejection of love. It's a rejection of, of the right of Jesus Christ to take over the throne and authority of our lives. This is why people reject the gospel. And this is why the gospel must be presented clearly as Christ being Lord and Savior of your life. Not just an addition to our life. Not as one who comes alongside of us to... To, to benefit us. You see the mentality there? He is king and he cannot sit on the throne of our hearts when we're sitting there. And old Tom Turkey in us doesn't give that up very fast. And notice as we go back down to the scripture, when Herod heard this, he was troubled. And whenever Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled with him. All of Jerusalem, because they knew what he was going to do. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ should be born, was to be born. They told him, <laughs> this is amazing to me, these chief priests and scribes of the people. Look how fast they gave the answer. They didn't have to go down the road and look into the scripture. They knew right away where he was going to be born. If they knew right away where he was going to be born, why were they even talking to Herod? 
Why weren't they talking to the Magi? Why weren't they saying, this is where he was supposed to be born, let's go with you? Because the chief priests and scribes were in the same condition as Herod, but in a much different way. Same condition, they had their religion, and they weren't turning that loose, not for a Messiah. See? When people reject our gospel, they're rejecting Christ's claims over us. Karen and I have gotten into a show that we really like. It's called Motive. I don't know if you ever watch Motive. It's, it's an ongoing series. It's not a whodunit. It's a why done it. They tell you right off the bat, killer, victim. I mean, the opening scene, they get a little picture, killer. You know who the killer is, but you don't know why he did it. What's the motive? And you learn that throughout. The, it's, it's, it's fascinating. What's the motive of people rejecting the gospel? It is that he is not going to be their king. Okay? Notice verse 5. Bethlehem of Judea, so, so it is written by the prophet. This is Micah's prophecy. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Herein is the Old Testament prophecy. Now, as good Bible students, let me encourage you, whenever you see a reference to the Old Testament, always go back there. Read it for yourselves. Read the context. You know now Mike is all about authority and who's the right king. And, but let's go back there. Micah chapter 5. Now, I've cheated. I'm going to get there faster than you. I've got a piece of paper because I knew I was going to go there. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Turn there with me, and we'll end our thoughts there today. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you can pull your thumb out of Matthew. We're done there. Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Matthew is going to strategically leave, leave verses out. He's going to quote the first part, leave the second part, add the third part. Always ask yourself, why do the New Testament writers do that sometimes? Why are they leaving stuff out? Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Beth Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth to me one who is ruler in Israel. That's where Matthew stops. Well, let's read the section he left out and try to understand why he left it out. Whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up unto the time. Well, therefore he, the one who's going to be born in Bethlehem, shall give them up. Who? The Israelites, the Jews. He'll give them up for a time, the age of grace, from Pentecost until he comes back to reestablish Israel in the land. When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return. That's you and I. We're the rest of the brothers. And we're going to return with Israel. Notice, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. The millennial reign. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 
and they shall dwell secure. A promise to Israel and the church within the millennial reign. They're going to dwell in the land secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. Matthew leaves all that out. He runs to the end of verse 4 about the shepherd of the flock and the strength of the Lord. Well, why leave all that out? Because that's the second coming. Matthew is sharing the first coming. So he simply shares that he is going to be born in Bethlehem and shepherd his flock. The part about him returning with us hasn't happened yet, so he just leaves that out. I had a couple thoughts for you, and we'll close. The throne can only be inhabited by one person. Either you're in charge of your life or he is. That's it. He doesn't share the occupancy. One person drives the car. That's it. Kids, how many of you parents and grand have ever heard your kids say, to a sibling, you're not my boss. That's, that's really important that we establish bossship, okay? Betty's having that struggle with Avonlea that she gets her finger in my face and tells me, but Pop, she's not my boss. I said, well, who is your boss? Mommy and Daddy? Yes, that's right. But authority, who gets to call the shots, is the big deal. It can only be one. It's either God or it's you. Okay? Growth is a process of handing over the authority of your life to somebody else who absolutely deserves that. Number two, I want you to know that the throne that you and I have occupied all of our life is much too big for us. Much too. Jackson, come on up here. Jackson, I got Jackson something. Come on, buddy. I got Jackson something. I want him a gift, if you will. Is it your birthday, Jackson? Is it, is it anything today? You're just happy to be here, aren't you? Okay. All right. Uh, I got you something. I got you a pair of pants. <laughs> I want you to put them on, okay? Don't fall. No, you got sneakers on. I'll rip my pants, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, pull them up. How they look, man? He <laughs> look like a comedian. What com comedian does he look like? Red Skelton used to do that, didn't they? You like him? Yeah, take your hands away. Thank you. All right, those are yours, man. You can keep those. Jackson, you like, you, like, you like that gift? No problem with the gift? His problem isn't the need of suspenders. His problem is his pants are too big for him. We use that term sometimes, too. Those, yeah, you're a little too big for your pants. The authority of our lives is too big for us. That's why people are miserable. See, the lost world looks at the gospel and looks at Christ's thing, and don't, don't strap that. It's, 
but we find our greatest freedom when we let him have the throne and authority. It's too big for us. It's why we're empty. It's why we hurt. It's why we're trying to manipulate life to make it all happen and, and pull this off and make that person do this and that and this circumstance. is too big for us. God is the only one who deserves the right to sit on that throne. So to leave you with that thought, you have two kings, one who hated and one who gave, and a group who gave homage to Jesus Christ. This is the first of four different elements from a microcosm of this chapter of what we're looking at right now in the gospel through the centuries, through the centuries. We'll share the next three in the next three weeks. Lord Jesus, we pray today as we close out our service with a song of worship, a song that says, come as, come as we are. And we ask you, as only you can, to examine our hearts, to know, and to tell us, and to show us whether we're on the throne or you are. Whether we're hating or loving you. Whether you are our king or whether we are our own king. Kind of comes into play, Lord, when things happen and decisions have to be made. Do we honor you in all that we do and say? Do we make the decision always to please and honor you? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came like you did. We thank you for the wise men, the magi, who traveled, wouldn't give up, so they got there and gave everything.